All right, if you want to come in, grab a seat, open up to John chapter 1. Forgot to mention Dallas and Ellie Cowan are in the house today, so I'm going to give them an awkward side hug. You can. I did that after the break so that, you know. Anyways, <laughs> let's open up to John chapter 1, and I want to read a chunk of scripture. It's, it, it's a lot, about verse 18 verses, but read around, along with me and just listen to the words that are used here. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through Him, all things were made. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said he comes, he who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me, and out of his fullness we have received, all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Pretty powerful passage. Beautiful passage. It's a passage that's full of of imagery, wording, it's poetic. What a way to open the Gospel of John. I have a a friend uh, who's a doctor, his name's Dan, and I get lunch with him periodically. And he told me that as a pastor, my job's easy. He said, your job's easy, Jared. All you have to do is you tell people to read the Bible every single day and then do what it says. That's all you have to do. And immediately, you know, I get defensive and think, oh, hold on here, there's a lot more to pastoring than that, and, you know, go into all the reasons why pastoring is more than that. But then I was like, just what you've told me is easy to do. That's difficult to do, to get people to read the Bible every single day. I mean, that's hard enough. And then, let alone having people actually do what the Bible says, well, that's not an easy task either. And I know it's not an easy task because I'm a pastor, and it's difficult for me. It's a difficult thing to do. But I think about it, following Jesus, how easy our life would be if we would have a discipline where we would open the Bible every single day, read it, and then do what it says. We're in a season starting this week in the church calendar called Lent. And Lent is something that a lot of church traditions follow, Christian traditions. Maybe you grew up in a liturgical church, a Catholic church. 
Lutheran, you, you follow Lent. Uh, Lent's something that we don't necessarily kind of follow as a, as a practice here at Desert City, but there's an acknowledgement that there's something different that happens in the calendar during Lent. Lent is a season where we, we, uh, we focus less on ourselves to have more of God. Some people will give up something in the time of Lent. And here's what we have said as a church in this season of Lent, where we, we desire more of God. Is this, we want this to be a season for us that we dive deep as a church into our relationship with God. In January, we talked about prayer. What we want to do for the next eight weeks is dive deep into this Gospel of John, this account of the life of Jesus. And I think there's some seasons where they might be more lighthearted. This is one of those seasons where we go deep. And so we're going to look at this Gospel of John over the next eight weeks. And my encouragement to you is that you would read it every day. That you would read it every day and do what it says. Civil task as a pastor to encourage you. Uh, we've tried to give some tools for this season. So there's a prayer journal that we have that has a daily Bible study that kind of follows this reading through John. And my hope is that you would read it, not just once, or not just read sections of it, but that you would read it over and over in the next eight weeks. That you would read it and that you would wrestle with it. That you would study it. That you would reflect on what it's saying. That you would pray through the words of this text. And what you find is that as you read John in such a way, the text will end up reading you in your life. And God will meet you in these words and form you to be a certain kind of person here and now. So that's our hope is this series, is to dive into this Gospel of John. John opens John chapter 1 with this kind of prologue, and it's, it's a poem. And it's a poem about who Jesus is. Just give you a little kind of background and context of John. It was written, the author, we, we think, was a man named John. Not super controversial, right? John. John wrote this. And what is, what is interesting is there's a distinction of what John it was. Because much like today, John's a very common name in that time period. So there's John the Baptist. John the Baptist isn't, what, isn't who wrote this. Uh, the man who wrote it was uh, uh, one of the disciples. Uh, he was uh, a son of Zebedee, which is a fun name to say, brother of a man named James. Uh, he was known personality-wise, was given the nickname one of the sons of thunder. So imagine like when you hear that, thunder. Da, 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 da. Like John, John has this really, uh, he's, just, he's a powerful personality. He's also known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's one of the inner three, one of the closest people to know Jesus. Tradition also says that he's probably pretty young, uh, maybe even a boy in the time of Jesus, probably outlived all the other disciples. But this man named John is the one who writes this. He writes an account of his life, experiencing life with Jesus. And what's interesting about John, if you see, if you know there's four Gospels in the Bible, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's kind of like a Bible 101. This might be new to you. It might be, you know, you might know this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are called the gospel accounts. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, which means they're similar to each other. They're in sync. John's different. John's different than the other three. There's a different style to the writing. There's a different ordering of events. There's a different kind of storytelling. And as you read through John, what you find is that he's he, 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 he's writing maybe in a different time, different context, not a lot later, 
uh, but maybe later on with a different purpose. And what you'll find as you read John is it's different than the other Gospels because a couple of things. One is it doesn't have the story of Christmas. The birth story, the details are different. You don't get the same story that you have in Luke. And you could think, how do you tell the gospel story without Christmas? That, that, that's the most beautiful part, right? Like, there's no story of Christmas. There's, there's no story of Jesus' his baptism. No story of the temptation in the desert. The story of the Last Supper. Nothing on Gethsemane. Nothing on the Ascension. No stories of healing of the demon-possessed. And here's probably the most odd thing, is that there's not really any parables in the Gospel of John. These things that are in these other Gospels that, that we know that make these stories beautiful, as John's writing, he's concerned with different things. And what we find is that John is telling the same story, but he's telling it from a different angle. He's giving a different view of what is the life of Jesus. So the way that he orders events, and there are some similarities to the other Gospels, is that he's got a very specific purpose. He's telling the same story from a different angle. I heard one scholar say this of John. If, if John was like a pool that we're wading into, uh, it's shallow enough that a child can paddle around in safety. And yet it's deep enough that an elephant can swim in it. This is the versatility of this gospel. Shallow enough that a child can paddle in it in safety and deep enough that an elephant can swim in it. It's uh, my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, and, 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 I, and I love the storytelling of John. But here's the purpose of John. He tells us his purpose in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's writing so that you may believe that Christ is the Son of God. And then by believing, you may have life in his name. This is a book about belief and life. Life. And what we'll find is that over and over again, John talks about this life that we're invited into, a life to the full, a life that's truly life, a life that we experience here and now, but a life that is eternal. As we look at the life of Jesus, we find what it means to live life as God desires for us. The story opens with, in the beginning. In the beginning. It's a phrase that if you uh, know scripture, you've heard that phrase before. That's how the story in Genesis starts, right? In the beginning, the heavens and the earth. John opens up this and says, in the beginning. He's making a tie back to how the story of scripture begins. For the Jewish people, they would recognize this language. He's doing something here as he says, in the beginning. And what we find is that John, as he tells this story of Jesus, he has created an echo of the creation story in Genesis. And as you dive into to John, you'll find signs of that creation story. He's retelling that now. In the beginning was the Word. That's an interesting phrase, too. Was the Word. What does Word mean? When you hear the word Word, you might think of the, like, the late 80s, early 90s slang, word, right? <laughs> word up. What is word? In the beginning was the word. The word is a Greek phrase, the logos. The logos. So what we find is as John is writing, he, he makes this connection between the Jewish world in the beginning and this Greek language, the logos. This, 
As the church starts to grow after the resurrection, as the church starts to expand throughout the world, uh, it, what we find is that it, it moves into Europe, and it, and it goes from uh, its roots uh, within uh, 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 the Jewish people to now all of a sudden these Greeks are starting to come to Jesus. And as, as the Greeks start coming to Jesus, their, their culture and context is much different than the life where Jesus lived. And as John is writing to the church and he's writing to people, he's making this connection that in the beginning, that would grab the attention of the Jewish people was the word. That would grab the attention of the Greeks. John has this unbelievable ability to tell story for different audiences to hear and receive. And for the Greeks, the Greeks are into their Greek philosophy, right? For them, philosophy is this highest level of education. And this logos was key. Different maybe from, from our society. I don't know if you enjoyed philosophy class in school. I always think of, uh, you know, the game of life, the board game. When you lose at the game of life, you become a philosophy teacher. Uh, we don't maybe think the same of philosophy as, as the Greeks. I actually like philosophy because I kind of nerd for that kind of stuff. But for the Greeks, philosophy is the this, this highest level of, of thinking and education. And this idea of the logos. Logos means word or reason or wisdom. It was this special knowledge. And, and, and for the Greeks, the logos was this enlightenment, this, this, uh, this principle, this abstract principle that this is how the world works. This is how everything in the world is held together. It's the principle of order under which the universe continued to exist. The logos. You would be in touch with this ultimate reality of how the world works. And and they would say that at, at some moment you have this moment of transformation or enlightenment. And it's almost like you're in a dark room and you can hear noises and you can smell coffee, but you don't know what it is. And then all of a sudden a light goes on. A light turns on and you can see. You can see people. You can see colors. You can see that it's coffee that is making that scent. And, and, and they would say you're in touch with the Lagos. You have become enlightened to what reality is. And when John is writing, he says this. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And he makes this connection that this, this principle that holds the world together is a person. And that person is Jesus. And in the same way that this Logos enlightens us to what reality is, now Jesus enlightens us to the way that the world works. The Jewish people had a concept of this too, this Sophia. There was this wisdom throughout the Old Testament. And John's taking this idea of the Logos and he's saying, it's not a principle, it's a person, and his name is Jesus. And in this opening chapter, he's talking poetically about what Jesus does as he comes into this world. And he reveals to us a reality of how the world works. And he reveals to us who God is. And then starting in chapter 2, the rest of this text, John tells us what Jesus' life is like. The Logos, the Word, is Christ. And the rest of the Gospels, this is what Jesus is like. This is what God is like in flesh and blood. This beautiful way of telling story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. Jesus, the Logos. But then John has another phrase that he 
kind of hijacks from the Greeks that he uses when he starts talking about who this Jesus is. And it's this idea of a alethes or alethinos. It's, it's truth or reality or real. And we find in the Gospel of John, he uses this term over and over again, truth, reality. This is the true way. We read through it that Jesus is the true light that comes into the earth, comes to the world. Jesus is the true light in John chapter 1, verse 9. Everything Jesus did, therefore, was not only an act in time, but a window which allows us to see reality. What John is saying is that if we really want to know what's real and what's true in this world, we get that through Jesus being the true light. We now see the world through the light of Christ. The darkness can't overcome this. It's amazing having uh, four young children in our house at night. There's this fear of the dark. And that's just me. I'm, I'm terrified of the dark. Uh, but our children are too. And I, this is kind of a gross story, but the other night, you know, I, I woke up in the middle of the night and heard something. The kids were up, you know, went and checked on them. Then I went into the bathroom. And as I turned on the light, there was a, a certain bug, a roach, in our bathroom. And uh, we don't, I've never really seen one of those in the house before. Uh, but I was terrified as I turned on the light. It revealed what was there. So I went and got my sandal. And as I came back with my sandal, I couldn't find it again. And I was like afraid to look at, look, because there's nothing like being half asleep and having something as terrifying as a roach running around your house. So turn on all the lights, trying not to wake up Marcy, and trying not to alert Marcy that there was something in her house that she would probably go stay in a hotel. And I couldn't find it. And I searched and I searched and I searched, and uh, it was nowhere to be found. And so I, I remember turning the lights back off and going to sleep thinking, there is something on the loose in my house. And I could not fall back asleep. I was listening for it. It was such a small thing, and it was terrifying. And my only thought was like, I hope it's not in our kids' room. Who knows where it went? And I hope it doesn't end up on my face in the middle of the night. You know, like, there's, there's a fear that comes in the darkness. And when you turn the light on, it reveals what's there. And it's amazing, even as a grown man, something as small as that can be something spooky in the darkness. Yet the light reveals what is there. I found it the next day, by the way, and it's gone. But, but Jesus is the true light that comes into the world to reveal what is here. And there's great comfort in this light that comes, allows us to see. One of the things it does is it, it allows us to see circumstances for what they really are. The true light allows us to see circumstances, what we're living in, how we live life in the here and now. We're in touch with reality. And I think this is important because even in our, in our, as adults, we have a limited and narrow scope of, of how the world works. And oftentimes we're easily fooled. Oftentimes we listen to our insecurities. Oftentimes uh, we, we, we follow our own coping devices but this light that comes into the world through Jesus reveals what's true. It gives us a true view of our circumstances. It gives us an eternal perspective on what we're going through. Another thing that this light does is it allows us to see people as Jesus sees people. It reveals to us a vision of, of 
the image of God in one another. And we see people not in the midst of their darkness, but we see people for what they can be created in the image of God. The light reveals that. And the more that we know Jesus, the more that we are in line with his heart for those in this world, even those that look different than us, even those that act different than us. We see people through the light of Christ. Jesus is the true light that reveals what is in the darkness. Another phrase that this Elithos pops back up in John is when we get to John chapter 6, there's a story of the feeding of the 5,000. And after Jesus feeds the 5,000, uh, there's, there's a lot going on in that story, but the disciples are trying to process what just happened, and they're talking about receiving a sign, and Jesus is explaining to him this bread that feeds uh, the 5,000. And then he says this about himself. He says, I am the true bread, the real bread, the Alethinos bread that gives sustenance, that gives sustainability to your life. I am the true bread, and those who eat of me will never go hungry again. There's an eternal aspect to him. The true bread of this world. He who comes to Jesus will never go hungry. He sustains us for life. There's a simple math equation that had become popular in the last couple of years, and it's this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What we find is that this Jesus who sustains us is all we need in life. The true bread for all the things that we hunger for, for all the things that we thirst for, for all the desires that we have are met in Christ. And that's helpful because we spend most of our life pursuing and chasing different things that we desire and are hungry for. And all of the things in all of our pursuits leave us unfulfilled. But Christ is the true bread. He brings true contentment. And sometimes we don't realize this until we've lost everything, that Jesus is all we need. Some of you have gone through that. Moments of brokenness, moments of tragedy, moments of everything falling apart. And yet you find this Christ who is the bread of life, eternal bread, who is all you need. Some of you pursue all sorts of things outside of Christ, which I think is kind of the story all the way from the beginning of the garden, trying to find fulfillment in things outside of Christ, outside of God, left unfulfilled. But when Jesus is the true bread, then it means when the economy dips, when we lose a job, when relationships fall apart, when we struggle, we have this God who sustains us for life, life that is eternal. The third image is the true vine in John chapter 15. The true vine. The real vine. John 15 might be one of my favorite passages in scripture. She says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Remain in me. This idea of remaining and abiding means that not only does he sustain us in life, but he is, he is the life-giving force in this world. It's interesting in this passage in John 15, he says, apart from me, there's nothing that you can do. And we think of, what are we called to do as followers of Jesus? There's a lot. But first and foremost, there's this abiding in Christ. Apart from that, there's nothing that we can do. Apart from that, life is exhausting and we will burn out. 
He uses this imagery of a vine, that he's the true vine that is life-giving. And what's interesting is Jesus says, I desire for my people to produce good fruit. My hope for you is to live a life that creates things for others to eat, that creates things that reproduce, and that you would flourish in this world. But that comes from this abiding in the true vine, this relationship with God that is life-giving. For me, in my job as, as a pastor, you know, I kind of can spiritualize everything. And so I know that if I am trying to, to work on my own strength, it's exhausting. I have to abide in Christ. But I don't think that's just, you know, my job. I think that, that's true for everyone. No matter what it is that you do, when you live life on your own strength, it is exhausting. It wears you out. You get burnt out. But true life comes from the true vine. God says, remain in me. Abide in me. You will produce much fruit. John's saying that this Logos, this Jesus, is the true source of all life. And he wants us to live life to the full. Abide. Nothing can be done without it. And then finally, he uses this phrase again in John chapter 8, and he says that Jesus is the true judge. When you first hear that, you think, oh, there we go. There's that, that churchy word that's terrifying. And maybe it should be. It says that God is, Jesus is this, this perfect and true judge of this world. But as Jesus is talking about himself and he's saying that he's this true judge, what he says, and this is where I think it's good news, is that he doesn't judge by human standards. He judges with grace and truth. That means that at some moment we have this reckoning that we have with God, where he looks at our life and, and sees what we've done with it. But at the same time, this God who is full of grace and full of truth and completely understands our upbringing, our circumstances, meets us as a perfect judge. The true judge of life. It means no matter what we've done, no matter what we've gone through, we have this judge that knows us and loves us more than anyone else and invites us to a life that's truly life. Think about this again with my children. I know I've brought them up a lot in this message. But I find myself judging, being the judge between their arguments all the time. And as uh, they get into fights, as they argue with each other, I try to be fair. I try to listen. I try to make a judgment based on being a good father. And here's one thing I've learned about my children, especially with the boys. They're rowdy and they break things. That happens. And I'm okay with that if they're honest about it. I understand that they're going to wrestle, they're going to play football inside the house. Things are going to happen. But what's important to me is that when that happens, they come to me and they say, here's what happened. It's no one else's fault. I'm taking responsibility of it. I did it. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not trying to sweep it under the rug. I'm not trying to manipulate what happened. And when they do that, it's like, I don't care what they've done. I know that they are sincere about knowing that what happened is broken, and they want to make it right. There's, in a sense, a confession. There's, in a sense, a, a, a owning of what I've done. 
And when that happens, I, I judge it much differently. And I told them, you know, I'm, I'm okay with you doing something wrong if you're willing to come and to talk about it and to be honest. But then I think about our relationship with God, who's this perfect and true judge. We're human. We're going to break things. We're going to make mistakes. Jesus invites us to come to him out of honesty and confession, saying, Lord, I am broken and I need help. There's things in my life. I can hide them, but I'm not whole. Jesus invites us to come to him as the perfect judge with those things. He's the true judge. And today as we start this series and as we start to look at the life of Jesus, the true and real God, we may experience him as the true light that is revealing. We may experience him as the true bread that sustains us. The true vine is a life-giving force that allows us to produce fruit. And the true judge that looks at our life and invites us to get better. And T. Wright says this of the passage. And I, and I love this, and I, and I think this, this is what we're invited to. He says, perhaps the most exciting thing about this opening passage is that we're in it too. To anyone who did not accept him, to anyone who did accept him, verse 12, that means anyone at all, then and now, you don't have to be born in a particular family or a part of the world. God wants people from everywhere to be born in a new way. Born into a new family, which he began through Jesus, and which has spread through the world. Anyone can be a child of God in this sense, a sense, sense which goes beyond the fact that all humans are special in God's sight. Something can happen to people in this life which causes them to become new people. People who are, as verse 12 says, believe in his name. Somehow the great drama of God in the world, of Jesus in Israel, the word who reveals the glory of the unseen God, this great drama is a play in search of actors, and there are parts for everyone, you and me included. And as John writes about this Jesus, he writes that we may believe, that we may be in touch with the true reality of God, and that through that we may have life. Tim's going to come back up and close us with a song. And we're going to take a time of communion today. Communion represents this reality. I heard someone explain it the other day. Communion is, uh, these are, are, are visible things that represent invisible gifts of grace in our life. And as we take communion, we take and we remember what God has done. That the word became flesh. And it lived among us. It revealed to us reality, what God is like. It turned the light on so that we can see. And this word was a life-giving force for us. It sustains us. It gives us life that is eternal. And it meets us in our brokenness. And it fixes us. We remember this today as we go to the table. And we proclaim it. And we proclaim it. We take a piece of bread that represents this word became flesh and walked among us. The body of Christ. And it was broken open for us. We take juice that represents the blood of Christ that was poured out, that washes us clean, 
that all of our brokenness, all the things that we have broken, gives us a fresh start. Today we move to communion with that in mind. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this beautiful poem that starts this account of your life. Lord, I would ask that as we start this season of, of diving into John, you would reveal yourself to us in new ways. Maybe for some of us, that you would reveal yourself to us for the first time. That you would become real. For those of us who've heard this story over and over again, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see it and hear it in a new way that is fresh. A way that forms us to be the people that you desire. Lord, we're thankful for the fact that you are the true light. And all the different messages we hear from the world around us, Lord, we're reminded that our circumstances, that people, we can see them through the glimpse of eternity, through the glimpse of your Son. Lord, we thank you for being our daily bread. Bread that is eternal, that sustains us in the midst of the scarcity of life, that sustains us in the midst of us trying to find fulfillment in other things. You offer us life eternal. That you're the true vine, Lord. That you pour into us your spirit. You allow us to produce great fruit in this world. Thank you for being the perfect judge. In the midst of our brokenness, Lord, you meet us. You look at us and you love us as we are, but you love us way too much to leave us this way. Lord, do your work inside of us today. Draw us closer to you. In your sons, let me pray. Amen. When you're ready, feel free to move about the room. We have communion set up on both sides, and then uh, I'll close this after the song with a benediction.